every day the work I do is meaningful. So even if my client ends up losing, if I end up losing, I'm fighting for my client and I'm doing work that I find personally very meaningful and important. Right now in my current position, I'm advocating for people who have usually not ever had a real advocate for them in their entire lives and people who have, you know, both done really terrible things and have hurt a lot of people, but who have also been severely traumatized and have been very hurt their entire lives and are really going up against a system that does not treat human beings like, like human beings. Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. Now let's get started. So I want to welcome today's guest, Corey Isaacson, who's a staff attorney at the Georgia Resource Center, which is a nonprofit dedicated to ensuring that all people on Georgia's death row have meaningful and vigorous representation. She focuses primarily on habeas corpus proceedings, which are provided free of charge to those sentenced to death in Georgia. Before that, Corey worked as a staff attorney at the Georgia Justice Project, and before that, at the East Bay Community Law Center. Corey's a graduate of New York University and the University of California, Berkeley. Welcome to the podcast, Corey. Thank you, Jonah. So great to talk to you. So I want to start by just talking about your current work. Can you tell me a little bit about your current role? Sure. So I'm an attorney at the Georgia Resource Center, and we are a nonprofit based in Atlanta, and our mission is to provide effective representation to everybody on Georgia's death row. And we provide that by either directly representing people on the row or ensuring that everyone has effective representation if it's not by our office. So we do have a couple of cases that we're conflicted off of. There are also um, multiple cases that are represented by pro bono counsel. But even in those cases where we're not directly representing the client, we serve as a resource. That's fantastic. And can you just uh, talk a little bit about what a habeas corpus proceeding is for someone who's not familiar with it? Because I know that's probably your bread and butter, but not something that everybody talks about. Yeah, that's a great question. And habeas is really complicated. And there are a lot of different ways to talk about habeas proceedings. But this the simplest way is to think of it as a constitutional attack on someone's conviction or sentence. So after someone is convicted and, and sentenced in criminal court, there are direct appeal proceedings. And then when direct appeal proceedings are done, there's an opportunity to collaterally attack the criminal conviction and the sentence, which is essentially saying to the court, my client's conviction and or sentenced was implemented or issued in violation of the Constitution. And so habeas claims are generally not record-based, which means they're often not obvious from the face of a trial record. So for instance, a very common habeas claim, especially in, in capital cases, is ineffective assistance of counsel. So making the claim that, you know, while my client may have been represented technically by counsel at trial, the representation that counsel gave was unconstitutional, that the attorney was ineffective under the Sixth Amendment and did not perform their constitutional duties to our client. 
Got it. And could you talk a little bit about some of the challenges of that being a non-record-based claim from the perspective of the attorney drafting the pleadings? Are there unique challenges to the position from which you're starting? Yeah, so that's actually a pretty loaded question, Jonah, because (laughs) it gets into um, the different types of habeas proceedings and also gets into a statute known as EDPA that was passed in 1996 that really severely curbed what habeas litigation looks like. And so, you know, to first answer your question, how do you arrive at these non-record-based claims? The answer is with a lot of investigation. And so there are two types of habeas proceedings. There's state habeas proceedings, and then there are federal habeas proceedings. So our office takes over when there is a Georgia capital case and the client has both been convicted and sentenced to death, and then direct appeal proceedings are concluded. At that stage, our office takes over, and the first column of habeas proceedings are state habeas proceedings. So during the state habeas proceeding, there's a lot of investigation. So take, for instance, what I was saying before, an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. So in order to prove that our client's trial attorney represented our client ineffectively, We have to be able to investigate what a competent attorney would have done and would have uncovered. And this gets into things that are unique about capital cases and capital trials. So capital trials have two stages. There's first a guilt innocence phase. And then if someone is actually convicted of a capital crime, the case then moves into a second stage of proceedings, the penalty phase. And at the penalty phase, it's the job of the defense to offer what's called mitigation evidence. And the Supreme Court has made very clear that mitigation evidence does not have to be directly tied to the crime. It can be anything and everything that can be seen as mitigating. So a good mitigation investigation and defense includes details of the client's trauma history, of mental illness, if there's mental illness, of mental illness maybe going back through generations of their family, of the different deprivations that they may have faced in childhood, good character evidence, people to come on and, and say good things that our client has done. So it's a lot more about the person and not just the specific crime of which guilt and innocence has already been decided. Exactly. And it can be about the crime too. It, it can be evidence that mitigates the state's depiction mm-hmm. of the crime. But mitigation evidence tends to be very heavy in terms of explaining the humanity of the person on trial. So the state is usually representing the client as a monster, pure evil, someone who needs to be dealt with the death penalty. And the job of the defense is to give the other story, to, to show that this person on trial is a person. This is a look into their past and what their life has looked like, not necessarily as an excuse for the crime, but as for an explanation for how we got there. And so when we are representing our clients in state habeas and we look at the trial transcript and the trial record and we see this mitigation evidence that the trial attorney presented seems pretty minimal. Let's investigate and see what's actually out there. A lot of what it sounds like you're doing is actually fact development work, right? There's a legal piece to it and you need to know what the legal backdrop is, but you're doing a lot of factual investigation. Is that accurate? Yes and no. So that's Mm -hmm. accurate at the state habeas end of things. So when we have a client who is in state habeas, there's a lot of investigation being done by investigators and by the attorneys and 
we are doing all of the investigative work that should have been done at trial usually. But then after that investigation is done in the state habeas column of the proceedings, there's an evidentiary hearing, which is very similar to a bench trial. And we are presenting our legal claims backed by all of the new evidence that our office has investigated. So for instance, you know, back to the ineffective assistance of counsel claim, if in our investigation, we discovered, let's say, multiple childhood psychiatric hospitalizations, records dating back from kindergarten showing, you know, severe anxiety and dysfunction in the family. If we find mental illness records demonstrating that there has been schizophrenia, for instance, in the family for generations, and none of that came in at trial, our legal claim is that an effective attorney under the Sixth Amendment would have uncovered and presented all of that to a jury. And because they didn't, they were constitutionally deficient in their performance. I don't have a ton of experience with ineffective assistance of counsel, but the limited sort of view I have it into it is those are always very difficult claims to win because they're counter narratives to what should have happened and what happened. And so it probably feels like an uphill battle from the moment you walk into the courtroom. <laughs> In general, capital cases seem like an uphill battle, especially in particular jurisdictions, the 11th Circuit included, which is where I'm practicing. And, you know, we're starting with cases where there's already been a capital conviction and a death sentence imposed. And to try to convince a court that not only was the attorney deficient in what they did or did not uncover, but also that deficiency prejudiced our client, you know, in other words, that mm -hmm. there was a reasonable possibility of another outcome if the lawyer hadn't been deficient. That can be pretty difficult, but I will say it's much less difficult in state habeas proceedings than in federal proceedings. And that is because of the statute that I referenced before, EDPA, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. Can you talk a little bit more about sort of the federal process? Just take a step back. Generally, if we lose and our client loses in state habeas proceedings, there then is the opportunity to litigate in federal court, in federal habeas proceedings. Those proceedings are, though, severely limited by EDPA. So EDPA imposed a really significant constraint on what federal courts can consider and what kind of relief they can issue in habeas proceedings. And so under EDPA, let's go back to ineffective assistance of counsel. A federal court looking at an ineffective assistance of counsel claim in one of our cases isn't allowed to just ask whether or not there was a constitutional violation, whether or not the attorney was constitutionally deficient and whether that deficiency was prejudicial. Instead, they have to look at the state court decision. And if the state court found that there was no ineffective assistance of counsel, the federal court cannot decide differently. So it's like standard of review on top of standard of review on top of standard of review. And you're not reviewing the case. You're reviewing the state court's decision about the case. Exactly. And so it's very common in capital habeas cases and federal cases for the court to say, this is not about whether or not 
we think there was a constitutional violation. It's whether or not the state court's decision that there wasn't is reasonable. And are there other challenges? So I know you've talked about the investigatory piece. Are there other specific challenges to representing clients who are on death row and have been convicted of their crimes? That's a a great question, Jonah, and a broad one. I mean, there are legal difficulties, there are emotional difficulties, but I would say the, the biggest hurdle to doing this kind of work is just the immense amount that our clients and us are up against just with the power of the state sure being committed to seeing this death sentence out and being in jurisdictions with very conservative judges who also are committed in seeing you know lawfully imposed sentences carried out it can be very mm-hmm. hard when the losses are really great and it really is jurisdictional. How do you as an individual, as a lawyer, deal with the fact that you go into cases where there's a pretty good chance you're going to lose? And as you said, there are more losses than there are wins. How do you either psych yourself up or what gets you up in the morning, even if you, even though you know that's the status quo you're going against? That question gets into why I got into <laughs> sure. defense work in the first place. This is a lot more interesting than the hyper technicalities of EDPA. So I went to law school knowing that I wanted to do something public interest related and thinking maybe that would have something to do with indigent defense, but not knowing too much about it. But there was no question that I wanted to do something public interest related. And I interned at a public defender's office my first summer and then was very committed to doing indigent defense. And so I haven't looked back since then. And I think I was so drawn to indigent defense, you know, A, because I knew that I wanted to use my law degree to help people in a meaningful way. I mean, the law is really powerful and it has the ability to really hurt people and it also has the ability to really help people. And so I was drawn to using the law in a way that could advocate for people who didn't have other people really advocating for them. And the more I learned about our criminal justice system, the more and more it seemed to me that every aspect of it was unfair and was this terrible abuse of power that really failed to recognize people's humanity and and did incredible damage to individuals and families and communities and, and to our whole country. And, you know, it's one thing to say that there's this whole world of potential, even just saying, I want to do public interest work. What were some of the decision points along the way or experiences you had that helped you come to the decision of what you're doing? I don't really remember all of those points. You know, in some ways it was just kind of seamless. One experience led to another. So my first summer I interned at a public defender's office. I loved it. I loved meeting clients in jail. I It was very easy for me to connect to clients on a human level, no matter what they had done or had been alleged to have done. It was very easy for me to want to advocate for people no matter what the charges were. And I just really felt for my clients, I would say, from the very beginning. Did you ever have, you know, moments where you struggle and think, you know, my client is alleged to have done something really terrible or maybe has even admitted to doing something very terrible and yet you still have to represent them in court. Has that ever, that ever presented a sort of challenge for you as a person? No. <laughs> I mean, I can honestly say no. And 
not because, you know, I've had clients who have in fact done really terrible, traumatic, tragic things, but never with any client or for any moment, at least that I can remember, have I questioned their humanity. I mean, like for instance, now I'm representing people who have committed capital crimes, which means they have taken another person's life. And it's so tragic for the victim and for their family. And, you know, that's something in, in my mind always. To me, that is not at all mutually exclusive with holding my client's humanity at the same time. So my clients may have done terrible things, but they're people who have done terrible things and who have also done a lot of great things in their lives and continue to do great things and to be kind friends and supportive family members and people interested in the world. And the fact that they have done something terrible does not Mm. define the entirety of who they are. I'm really interested in, you know, I was just looking at your bio and going back to your time in law school, you were already working in clinics related to death penalty advocacy. Can you talk a little bit about the role that clinics played in your path? That's a great question, Jonah. So, I mean, I love to talk about law school clinics any chance I can get because they were so formative in my career and my ability to be a good lawyer. And I really think that they should be mandatory in all law school education. I didn't learn anything in the classroom compared to what I learned in clinics. There's just no There's no substitute for actually representing people and actually meeting clients. And I did two clinics while I was in law school. One was a clean slate clinic where I was helping to represent people who no longer had active criminal cases, but who had criminal records and were facing barriers to employment and housing because of those records. And then I also did a death penalty clinic my third year, which is when I was really first exposed to the world of of capital punishment and capital litigation. And that was a year-long clinic and very intensive, both in its training and work requirements. I had just amazing clinical supervisors, which was the number one benefit, I would say, of being in clinics. Just seeing attorneys who were so passionate and so smart and so dedicated and so committed to best practices and talking about what that means with their students. I mean, I'm so grateful for my clinical experiences and and I don't think that I would necessarily be in the same position I am now without my clinical experiences. And I guess, do you have any recommendations for folks who end up doing clinics about how to get the most out of the experience? Yeah, I would say just throw yourself in there. I mean, when I was a clinical student, I really felt like I was practicing law. I've also been a clinical supervisor, which I did for a few years out of law school. It's really hard to balance giving clinical students the right amount of freedom to actually learn and to be advocates on their own. And also at the same time to make sure that you are giving the right amount of direction and instruction so that your students aren't doing something that ultimately is is harmful for the client. So it's a really hard balance. The clinical instructors that I had, I felt like did it wonderfully. I felt like I had a lot of freedom, a lot of autonomy. The cases were really my cases, but at the same time, it was always under their direction and with their guidance and really their modeling, seeing how they litigated cases and how they 
interacted with clients and how they creatively brainstorm different issues. I know you said you learned the most in clinics. Are there other experiences in law school, either in the classroom or outside the classroom that sort of have affected the way you practice today? Yeah, I mean, I learned a lot in law school classes, and I, I loved most of my law school classes, but nothing compares to what I learned in clinics or in my summer internships. Um, mm-hmm. There just is no no substitute for that, like I was saying. And I was lucky enough to really be under the supervision of amazing attorneys who were just so so great in in their fields and so great at teaching students and also just the exposure to clients and to the real world of of what their lives look like and how their lead cases were impacting their lives you know i just learned and grew so much from those experiences i graduated law school ready to be a lawyer yeah i mean that says a lot and i don't think everybody can say that unfortunately as a law professor i'm supposed to say that but i I do think it's unfortunate that we're graduating people who you know, don't even have those basic skills. And that's what we're working on. Whether it's successful, I don't know, but jury's still out, I guess. One of the other things uh-huh. I was going to ask you is your whole career has been dedicated to public interest. And it sounds like you were interested in that even when you started law school. A lot of people start law school and for various reasons, sometimes end up leaving that public interest track. Can you talk a little bit about what you'd recommend to somebody who comes to law school thinking, I want to do public interest, or maybe somebody who thinks they want to do public interest, tried something else, and now wants to get back into it. So I know those are two questions, but I'm curious. Of course. And, you know, that brings me back to something you had asked earlier about effectively, how do you keep going, even though this work is really challenging and the losses are really great? And I think the answer to that is also the answer to the question you just asked, which is every day the work I do is meaningful. So even if my client ends up losing, if I end up losing, I'm fighting for my client and I'm doing work that I find personally very meaningful and important. Right now in my current position, I'm advocating for people who have usually not ever had a real advocate for them in their entire lives and people who have, you know, both done really terrible things and have hurt a lot of people, but who have also been severely traumatized and have been very hurt their entire lives and are really going up against a system that does not treat human beings like like human beings. So every day I am able to be motivated by my belief that the work I'm doing is making meaningful change and that's what keeps me going even when it's really hard. And and that's what keeps me committed to public interest work. I mean, I have three small kids. I would find it very difficult to work all day, every day, put my heart and soul into it for work that I didn't believe in. And because I believe in this work so strongly, it's what keeps me going. It's what keeps me doing it. And it's what makes me love my work. And that really is the biggest factor for me. One of the other things that, you know, that I think doesn't get talked about enough is the ways in which lawyers play the role of advocate, right? So your primary role is as an advocate in briefing and an oral argument and trying to convince a judge. Can you talk a little bit about the ways that you or maybe organizations that do the work that your organization does use legal argument, but for other audiences, so for a legislature or administrative proceedings or to try to change the law? 
Yeah. So I've been lucky enough that even in my relatively short career, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of different types of advocacy in, in different types of venues. And so, you know, I, I, I started my career as a clinical supervisor in a, a law school clinic where we represented young people in both school disciplinary proceedings and in proceedings in, in criminal court. And then I moved into a position where I was representing people um, with criminal records who are facing barriers to house and employment. And then what I'm doing now, which is representing people on Georgia's death row and, and habeas proceedings. In those various roles in those various organizations, I've advocated for clients in court. I've advocated for clients in administrative proceedings, in the state legislature, in at school board meetings, anywhere and everywhere, basically. And for my work, indigent defense generally, which is, you know, the common thread of the different positions that I've been in, really the job is to primarily to communicate to the audience my client's humanity. So, you know, that's what I'm doing even when I'm writing cert petitions to the Supreme Court. I mean, it, it might be about a, a technical legal claim, but it's going to be a lot more persuasive if the justices are also able to care about my client when they're reading the cert petition. And when I was in the state legislature helping to push for change in Georgia's record restriction laws, if the legislators didn't care about my clients or what happened to them or the fact that they were facing these really significant barriers to employment, then they weren't going to be persuaded to do anything to change the law. And so I think I've just come to this realization from doing these different jobs and these different types of advocacy, it really isn't that different. <laughs> you know, mm. no matter who the audience is, my job is to help them see who my client is and, and to communicate a specific message. And that is the same role, no matter if I'm talking to a school disciplinary panel or to the United States Supreme Court. It obviously varies in, in what it looks like, but I think a lot of the skills and, and the goals are the same. Yeah, no, that's really interesting to me. I mean, especially as somebody who teaches legal writing, right? We spend the whole first semester of, of law school trying to train students to really focus on what the law is and how our cases either like what's happened in the law or unlike it. And then in the spring, we try to add this persuasive layer on top. And I often get questions from students about, you know, how do I tell a story in a legal way? So I guess I'm just digging a little bit deeper, can you talk a little bit how you think about being a for lack of a better word, a storyteller in your role as a lawyer? Yeah, I wouldn't say for lack of a better word. I would say that's a perfect word. You know, that the most effective advocates are great storytellers. And I will also say the best storytellers are the ones who really believe the story they're telling. So to be a great advocate, it's a huge benefit to really care and connect with your client and the cause that you are advocating for, because it's really hard to fake that. And so I think being a great advocate means exactly what you said. It means being a great storyteller and also really believing in the story you're telling and how the story ends up. And so that is what you know, I've tried to do 
across very different venues and with very different audiences is to tell a story about my client or my clients and to try to use that story and, and people's exposure to that story to advocate for my clients to get a more just result than the one they're facing now. Hmm. And can you talk a little bit nuts and bolts? You have a junior person in your office who says, you know, I just got this big file of this massive case and weeks of trial exhibits and everything else. How do you go about building that story from all of those various inputs? That's a hard question. So I'll say like when we have students in our office, we often have semester externs and we have summer interns. They'll usually have discrete assignments on a case. I mean, the record in our cases are literally thousands, if not tens of thousands right. of pages. And um, especially our office right now, the, the majority of our cases are in federal habeas proceedings. So they have all of the state habeas proceedings, all the record from state habeas, the record from trial, from direct appeal. There are thousands and thousands of pages. So if we have a student in our office, they unfortunately are not going to have the, the time to learn an entire record. But we usually will introduce student to a client's case by sitting down with them and really explaining to them not only the crime, you know, which is important for a lot of reasons, but our client's story, our, our client's childhood, our client's family, our client's current circumstances, our client's specific challenges and, and struggles, and we'll have that introduction be a jumping off point for the student's engagement in, in the case. I'm also curious about how you handle it, right? Like you need to know the record. And one of the challenging things that I hear from students all the time is I went to my first job and the judge says, okay, learn the record. And it's a thousand pages long. Are you building timelines? Are you, are you just locking yourself in a room and sitting in a yeah. chair until that record's read? I know there's no elegant solution, but I'm curious after some experience, how you handle that. Yeah, that's something that I'm dealing with right now, actually, as I'm trying to go back and kind of relearn the record of a case that I haven't worked on in in a while. And there are real practical barriers to to doing what really needs to be done to, to adequately learn these records, which are thousands upon mm -hmm. thousands of pages. You know, I, I mean, in an ideal world, I would shut myself in a room and I would read and I would digest, which is a very important tool that a lot of capital attorneys in particular use and that I use, which is just creating kind of a spreadsheet of what's happening in, in any given part of the record and noting why it might be significant or relevant to a particular legal claim so that I can more easily back to it later as I'm writing. And is that spreadsheet tied to dates or concepts or how do you build that? Again, I, I like to nerd out a little bit since we have people who are from the profession. I'm really curious how you build that. Yeah. So the, it's a, a pretty specific way in, in a federal capital habeas case. So there's a federal record that includes the entire trial record and all of the trial evidence and the entire direct appeal record and the entire state habeas record and everything that's happened so far in federal court. And so if I'm first learning a case, I'm first going to read the trial transcript, digest everything that happened at trial, 
look at the trial exhibits so I have an understanding of what the jury saw and didn't see. Mm -hmm. Then I'll usually jump to the state habeas transcript and see everything that was presented at state habeas, what the major legal claims were. And I'll usually then read the state habeas briefing so I know how those claims were litigated, especially because in federal habeas proceedings were so tied to what was litigated in, in state habeas. We're generally not allowed to raise anything that wasn't raised in state habeas, which is another big barrier in, in federal habeas cases. So those are the two major pieces that I start with, the trial transcript and, and then the state habeas evidentiary hearing transcript. And then I'll fill in all the gaps after that. But the real practical barriers are timing and triage yeah. and what's happening in, in other cases, because these records sometimes feel infinite and it's a lot of handwritten pages oftentimes Mm -hmm. you know when we're looking at old school records that have become part of the record and old mental health records that have become of the part of the records i mean it's deciphering a doctor's handwriting and figuring out what this notation in the middle of trial attorney's notes means i mean it it really is kind of this endless black hole of information that may or may not be relevant to your client's current legal claims but it takes forever to go through and and it really just depends on what's happening and in other cases and and when upcoming deadlines are to determine whether or not there's actually enough time to to do the type of record review that really needs to be done in these cases. Yeah. I mean, what it sounds like to me by starting with the trial transcript, that becomes your base, right? It allows you to issue spot everything else. It allows you to issue spot what wasn't covered during trial. It allows you to issue spot what was, but maybe not covered in the proper way. And so it almost like sets a lens that lets you weed out what's important and what's not. But yeah, you know, that's the challenge, right? Uh, there's, you know, there's not infinite time, no matter how hard you work. And, you know, having these techniques, I think are really important. The techniques you talk about, I know you make them sound almost like they're obvious. I don't think they're obvious. I think it is really important to have a process. And it sounds like you do and people who do your work do. Yeah, I'll say I at least have some kind of of process. It, it's evolving always, and I'm better at, at getting organized and documenting. I mean, that's a big issue for me, I think, and, and for a lot of people who do capital habeas work, is documenting when you've seen something that might potentially become relevant and being able to get to that quickly. So when I'm working on what the potential legal claims might be for a case, you know, I might say, oh, I know somewhere I saw this notation and one page of the record that indicated it may be relevant to this now developed legal claim and having a system where you can identify where you saw that and and what you saw is really critical and and that's something I'm getting better and and better at but organization is really key um, to record review in, in capital cases. Right. And I'm sure it comes just comes with experience, right? You're able to see it better. You know, organizational techniques work and what don't. I mean, that's true in any area of law, but I'm sure in your line of work is is a huge challenge. Yeah. So having worked in this arena for quite a while at this point, what are some of the challenges that you see and that you're up against every day in the criminal justice system or in capital cases more specifically? Yeah, so I think maybe the reason why I was drawn to capital work at this point in in my career is because I see it as kind of this microcosm of everything that's wrong with our criminal justice system. You know, the 
significant racial discrimination and the excessive punitiveness and inability to recognize people as people and the insistence on on doing things the same way we've always done them, even when they're so clearly not working and so clearly harmful to the people, you know, most directly affected and and the entire country, really. I mean, I, I see all of these issues that exist in the capital punishment system are widespread throughout the entire criminal justice system and are maybe just more emphasized in, in the capital punishment system. I mean, we know that racial discrimination is a huge factor in, in who gets the death penalty and who doesn't. I mean, studies show that it's the race of the defendant is a big factor and the race of the victim is an even bigger factor. So when a white person is killed, that makes the case much more likely to be ultimately a capital case than if a, a black person is killed, even under almost identical circumstances. We know that the death penalty is extremely arbitrary. You know, individual county prosecutors have this unbelievable, unfettered discretion to decide what cases are capital and which cases aren't. And it's usually a political decision. And that's something that we see throughout the entire criminal justice system. You know, there's unbridled discretion by prosecutors in terms of what cases are charged and how they're charged. and what deal is offered to the defense and you know how long of a sentence they're going to push for that's something that the prosecutor has almost complete control over and it's something that varies widely from jurisdiction to jurisdiction from individual prosecutor to individual prosecutor and from you know individual defendant to indivi- individual defendant i mean it's just almost entirely arbitrary if you look at the research and so that's something that is really highlighted in in capital cases, but is seen throughout the the justice system. And just this inability to to recognize people's humanity, which is, you know, a a theme I keep going to. Brian Stevenson, who his name is referenced in almost every conversation about the death penalty and and the capital Mm -hmm. punishment system, but rightfully so, because he's an amazing attorney who just speaks so truthfully and eloquently about the the problems with the capital punishment system. And he talks a lot about how our clients are more than the worst thing they've ever done. And also talks a lot about how it's not necessarily about whether or not someone deserves to die, but whether or not we as a society deserve to decide who is deserving of death and who isn't, who gets to live and and who gets to die. But, you know, to the first sentiment about people being more than the worst thing they've ever done. I mean, I believe that a hundred percent. I mean, there there is no question in, in my mind that is true. And there's no question in my mind that our justice system completely fails to recognize that. And that's really highlighted in in the capital punishment system where we are taking somebody and saying essentially that the only relevant piece of information about them is that they have committed this capital crime. And because of that crime, they deserve to die. And it is forgetting or refusing to acknowledge the, the fact that 
they were children with, you know, usually intensely traumatic experiences during childhood that they may suffer from severe mental illness, which is very common for people on death row, that they have families, that they have friends, that they read and have ideas and love music and like good food and miss the fresh air. I mean, that they are people. We, the, the capital punishment system does not recognize that people are people and people do bad things. That doesn't mean that they're any less of a person. And we really do a lot of direct and indirect harm when we refuse to recognize people's humanity, which is something that the entire criminal justice system does. Yeah, I guess my follow-up to that is the challenges that you describe are so great and so systemic. How do you deal with the fact that you're fighting against a system that is completely stacked against you and your clients. I know we've talked a little bit about it, but I guess I'm just curious, like, how do you just keep going? Yeah, I ask myself that question a lot. Really, for me personally, the number one answer is that I really believe that what is being done system-wide and specifically to my clients is a complete injustice. And so I have really just derive a a lot of meaning and and will to keep going just from knowing um, that I'm fighting against what what I see is this really huge injustice and and fighting for clients that I really care about. That to me is the biggest motivator. When I was a clinical supervisor, you know, I learned from my incredible boss, Kate Weisberg, who had been a clinical supervisor for a while, the phrase um, redefining victories. And so we would often talk to our students about how when you're doing indigent defense, and especially now in capital work, you have to redefine victories because the traditional victory of winning a case legally, you know, actually getting, for instance, my client's death sentence overturned. Those type of victories are very few and far between. That's Mm -hmm. the reality. But other types of victories are present every day. And those victories can vary, but they include fighting for my client and really caring about my client and advocating for my client and, you know, making the state really work to do what they're trying to do. They're going to have to really contend with creative and strong legal arguments. They're going to have to respond to motions and to really well-written, thought-out briefs. And, you know, they're going to have to to do all these things because we're going to make them do these things and they're not going to do them easily. And, And even if ultimately we don't win, You know, those are the victories along the way that still are victories, even if they're not the ultimate victory that we really hope for. Hmm, That's really powerful. I like to end these interviews by asking either the best piece of advice as a lawyer that you've received or the best piece of advice that you like to give. From a career perspective, I would just say, do what you love. And I often think that it's so strange that law school is one program because to be a lawyer is, Hmm. I mean, that's a hundred different careers. And and I know for me, like I am really drawn generally 
to the law. I mean, I, I love legal writing and research. I love the complexity of it. I love the arguing. I love the wrestling with hard issues. But I wouldn't be motivated to do the work or at least do it as well as I try to do it if I didn't really care about the type of law I was practicing and, and the clients that I was advocating for. So I guess my advice is just do what you love and make sure that you are happy with the type of law that you're practicing. And for some people, I think it's enough just to be a lawyer and they are interested enough in practicing law that it doesn't matter what type of law they are practicing. But I think for a lot more people, it does matter and they don't necessarily let themselves listen to that. And I mean, law school makes it very hard to do public interest work. As someone wanting to do public interest work in law school, it means you're applying constantly for positions. So, you know, when I went to law school, if you wanted to work for a firm, you applied for a summer internship, your, your 1L year, and if you got it and, and did a relatively good job, you basically had a job for after you graduated and that was it, right? And those companies come to you, the firms come to you, they come to campus and you just sign up for an interview and then you've gotten a 1L job and a very lucrative position after law school. If you wanna do public interest work, you have to apply to very competitive positions for your 1L summer. Then you have to apply to very competitive positions for your 2L summer. Then you somehow have to find a job for after you graduate. And it might be applying to very competitive and very time intensive public interest fellowships, which are very limited and have a very rigorous process. It might mean applying to a hundred different organizations with the hope that one of them has funding to create a position, which is very abnormal for most public interest law offices to have positions available for new attorneys that aren't fellowship funded. So it, it requires a lot of work and dedication, all to ultimately end up with a position where you are going to make far less money than you would make if right. you were at a traditional law firm. So I would say the whole system is designed, maybe not intentionally, but to take people off the public interest track. And and that was something very common in law school for, you know, people to start law school feeling very certain that they wanted to be public interest attorneys. But it becomes harder and harder, you know, as the law school years go on and, and you realize you have to fight really hard to get these positions. And ultimately, you know, you're going to make way less money. And instead, at every turn in law school, you're offered these very easy to access interviews from these big firms that pay these incredible large <laughs> salaries right, right right out the gate. And so it's just very hard to stay on the path. Yeah. Can I just ask one follow-up to that, which is, what's your advice to a student trying to stay on this public interest track? Well, I think, first of all, it's recognizing that law is many different careers. And even though, you know, if you go into law school and you know you want to be a public interest attorney, you just have to keep reminding yourself that I went to law school to be a public interest attorney. And it's really enticing to look elsewhere because it's, it's so easy and it's so lucrative. And there's there are so many resources in law school to go down the firm path. You just have to keep reminding yourself, I want to be a public interest lawyer. And that's very different than being a corporate attorney. It's an entirely different career. 
So I think the number one thing is just reminding yourself what type of lawyer you really want to be and sticking to it, you know, no matter how hard it might be. I mean, and I say that from a, a position of, of privilege, you know, there are a lot of people who have personal and family situations where they really do need to go down a more lucrative path. And it's an amazing opportunity to have mm-hmm. a law degree. So I completely understand that there are different concerns and different factors that individuals have. But generally, if, if someone really wants to be a public interest attorney, I think it's a huge thing to remind yourself of that constantly in law school and, and to just keep telling yourself that's what you want to do. And in terms of actually getting a public interest position out of law school, Mm -hmm. I would say the number one thing that public interest law organizations are looking for is unquestioned commitment to the cause, whatever the public interest cause is. And I think that's because organizations recognize that you really need that commitment and that dedication to do public interest law well and to be a good advocate for your client. And so public interest organizations are looking for a demonstrated commitment to the clients that they serve and to the type of law that they practice. And so being able to communicate that commitment both through your experiences and through your knowledge of the issues is really key, I would say, to landing a public interest position. 